All right, so tonight we are going forward in 2 Chronicles, which is basically, as you would presume, an extension of 1 Chronicles, right? So it's that book that was written when the, the exiles from Judah returned to the Promised Land around 535 B.C. after their Babylonian captivity, and they were regrouping as a people. They're reclaiming their land, their rights. They're re-identifying with their legacy and faith, and they're going to rebuild the temple. Now, that's significant because as we come to Solomon here to start this book, Solomon dominates, well, it's all about Solomon and the temple for the first five, six, seven chapters, and even his administration a bit longer than that. And so it would make sense that as the Holy Spirit led the writers of Chronicles in Second Chronicles to focus on the temple because it's a very inspiring element of their history, and under Zerubbabel and Ezra, at the time that this was written, they have the, the task to rebuild the temple, and this is their legacy, the first temple. So there's a little bit of background to it when we, we come into it tonight, that in the context of when Chronicles was written and why it was written, and we had all those names in First Chronicles to identify with your Ancestry.com, now as we start Second Chronicles, it's to identify with the great heritage of faith that the people had as they've come back from captivity. And so we pick it up in chapter 1, we... We saw David step into eternity when we wrapped up 1 Chronicles, and now it really does completely shift to Solomon, his son. Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' houses. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon, for the tabernacle of meeting with God was, was there. So that was still there, the original central place of worship, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that Bazalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought the Lord there, sought him there, and Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. That's a very, obviously, a substantial number. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David my father be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth, in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? And then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart and you've not asked riches or wealth or honor or life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings who uh, were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. So this is our introduction to Solomon, that famous story where he asks for wisdom from the Lord. There in First Kings, we get a little more background, and we're told that it was actually in a dream. So he had a dream, and the Lord met him in this dream and spoke to him in this dream. And we've talked about this in times past, but there in the New Testament, right away with Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, we see God speaking through dreams, and we, we see that happen. Book of Daniel, God spoke through numerous dreams, and then Daniel interpreted those dreams around the same time that this book was written, 
And even back in, farther back in the Old Testament with Joseph, he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And there is something mysterious about how we dream and how our brain works and our mind and our subconscious and all that. But one thing is certain, that there is a reality where God can meet us in that realm where we're maybe half asleep or fully asleep, that we might be more open to things than we otherwise would be. And I don't completely understand it. I just know it's reality. And I've had a few profound dreams in my life, very profound dreams. And in some cases, I knew immediately this has to be the Lord or, or like, wow, that was such a good dream. It's a bummer. I woke up. But in fact, I have, in my own experiences, had that. So if you have a dream that you feel like maybe the Lord put something before you, you have this profound thought, man, when you wake up, write it down right away. Write it down right away and, and the details of it so you don't forget it. Because, you know, we have dreams that are from the food we ate and the day we had, the day before. We have dreams from maybe the devil. The devil likes to use bad dreams, too, to try and stir up fear and anxiety and stuff like that. But we can definitely have dreams from the Lord. So I would just say to you, well, we just touched this topic because this was a dream, that if you feel like you have a profound dream, like, like you wake up and you have a vision for something and, and you've had things that have been perplexing to you you're not sure, certain about, and then you wake up and it seems like it's a solution in a dream, write it down. Write it down and pray over it. And don't let the dream govern you. Let the word of God govern the dream and if it's meant to be and the Lord confirms it, it'll, it'll come to pass. And most of you know when I won the Pipeline Masters, the pinnacle of my surfing career, the night before at about 2 a.m. I had a dream that I won the Pipeline Masters. And it was absolute in detail. I won the Pipe Masters. I was on the cover of the sports page of the Honolulu Advertiser. And it was all this details. And I woke up and I was so bummed because I woke up about 4.30 in the morning and it had just been a dream. And it was the night before the Pipe Masters. And I was so bummed. But then I won the Pipe Masters that day. And in the final of the Pipe Masters, when I was paddling back out after a wave, there was a scene that unfolded for about 10 seconds that was exactly, and I do mean exactly what my dream was. Derek Ho coming at me in a barrel. And it was exactly my dream. And in my dream, I knew when he wiped out on that barrel, in the dream, I knew that's when I won the Pipe Masters. And when I'm paddling out and I see my dream, and it happens exactly the dream it happened, and this is before computer scoring where you know everything that's going on now in pro surfing, I popped through the wave and I thought, I'm winning the Pipe Masters. God showed me. He showed me the dream. I, I'm going to win the Pipe Masters. It's happening right now. It's happening. And it was an affirmation. Now, I wish I could have that every day. But I only had it one day. But it was a good day. So I hope you have a day like that for you with your dreams. But God came to Solomon in a dream. And it was the Lord. We test all things and hold fast that which is good. See, I wouldn't have thought that much of the dream until I won the, until that moment it happened. The moment it happened, I knew I'm good. that was the Lord showing me I'm going to win the Pipe Masters. And the next day, I was on the front page of the Honolulu Advertiser sports page, exactly the way I saw it in my dream, too. I still have that clipping. You just never know like what the Lord's doing, right? He's in another dimension working in our dimension. You don't want to underestimate what he's doing. But just know things like that, like things of the spirit, things of emotion, things of dreams, the word of God is going to always confirm it. A dream will never contradict God's word, for sure, or his character. So just keep that in mind and let him be personal in your life and let him show himself strong to you as you seek to serve him. But he asked Solomon, ask, ask of me what you want. Now, we think, now, if the Lord, if we're leaving here tonight, let, well, let's say we all go home tonight and we're sleeping and suddenly here comes the angel Gabriel 
And he's like, and you're like, oh, it's a dream. Pastor Joey said, oh, it's a dream right now. And he said, ask what you like. Do you know what you would ask? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know what I would ask. I don't know if you know what you would ask. Because I've told you in my life, watching and ready for the day of the Lord is the top of my pyramid. That the day of the Lord's going to come. So I'm already ready. That's how I'm thinking, watching and ready. But I do have worship, you know, I have, well, I have here on the left, the family legacy and asset wealth for the children and the children's children. And over here to the right, I've got the foundation for the gospel going forth when I'm long gone from planet Earth. So I'd be asking for things related to that. That's what I'd be asking for. And then the next level of the pyramid, because that's a one and that's a two and there's a three. The next level is always forward with Joey Buran. And, and that's like the guest speaking, like being at Poncho's church on Sunday. And the vision I want to impart to the next generation before I step into eternity. Those life pillars I've learned from serving the Lord. In the middle is worship generation for who we are here and now. And I've got all kinds of things I'm asking from the Lord for worship generation. And then to the right is the book, Beyond the Dream. See, always forward with Joey Brand kind of runs with the personal side, with personal estate to the Lord. And over here on the, this side is Beyond the Dream is spiritual. It's, an, it's designed to be an evangelistic book. And there's the ministry foundation. And there's the day of the Lord. So I know exactly what I'm asking for and why I would be asking it. And I say that to inspire you to think about what you would be asking for. Because we're told in the Bible, you have not because you ask not. And Jesus in the New Testament, well, the New Testament, first of all, Jesus said, ask. He said, let's get it correct, Joey. And to everyone who asks, they will receive. To everyone who asks, they will receive. And that's the seek, knock, and ask passage. It's important. Because he's talking about being a disciple, right? So, you, hey, ask and you shall receive. I'm asking, you know, like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. It's not the California lottery. It's ask in the context of being a disciple and a follower of Christ in the kingdom. Ask to everyone who asks, they shall receive. That's a tremendous promise. Then... In the last night before Jesus went to the cross, where he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, when you abide in me, you will ask what you will, and it will be granted to you. So here's a promise again, that if we're abiding in Christ, and we ask, as we're abiding in him, he promises that we'll receive it. But there's another one that's even more important and seals the deal. 1 John chapter 5. And this is the confidence that we have. We know that if we ask according to his will, we have that which we ask for. So the New Testament invites us to more than Solomon's dream. And it's, we don't even have to wait till we go to bed and hope we have the dream. We can open the scriptures, read the New Testament, and we can know, hey, to everyone who asks, they shall receive. Context, Sermon on the Mount. If you abide in me, you will ask what you will, and it will be granted to you. Context, abiding in Christ. And this is the confidence that we have. We know that if we ask according to his will, we will receive what we ask. Now, I have to tell you, in 35 years of living for Jesus, I've tried to understand these things, and I don't fully have a grasp on them. Because we know sometimes you ask, and the Lord's like, yeah, I answered. No, you received the answer. Sometimes you're asking, he's like, no, that's not... 
you know, no, no is an answer. And no's are really good in life because no's are closed doors. And the more no's you have, the closer you get to your yes, right? Or as Thomas Edison said, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I figured out what didn't work 10,000 times. And so we have record players and fluorescent lights and all these other things because he figured out from all those things where it was a no to get to the yes. And we see even in the book of Acts that there's a no and a no and then there's a yes. But we need, we need to be people of confidence with faith in Jesus and faith in his promises and faith in his character to know that he says to ask. To everyone who asks, they will receive. And if we abide in him, we will be granted what we ask. And if we ask according to his will, we know it's our confidence we know we will have it. So the more you know the scriptures, the more you know the Lord personally in your relationship with the Lord, the more confident you become in asking for the right things or as it says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So the key is we're delighted in the Lord and then he's telling us what to ask for. Because if you go back to the Lord's prayer, Jesus said, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. See, that's where we want to be. That's where we want our heart to be. That the heart reveals the motives. So the motives are for the Lord and his kingdom and his will. And then the asking is the what for what he wants to do. You keep putting him over all those things in your life. So I would hope he would maybe do something special for you to ask you. And you would know like, wow, it's the Lord. But I just know you can wake up tomorrow morning and read your Bible and know that the same principles apply. But we move things with prayer. And... The Lord tells the woman who cares, and he tells the man who cares. And so by we, when we make time for the Lord, therein is the key. See, the fascinating thing about Solomon is he got off to such a good start because he really, he was set up to win. Like, he inherited a winning thing. And the Lord, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but he didn't really earn any blessings. The favor of God is the favor of God, and he don't do anything to earn it. I know in my own life he's given me great favor, and I know I didn't earn it. Favor of man's a different thing. You show up for work on time, do a good job, you get the favor of man, and then you get a raise or you get promoted. There's a big difference. Favor of God isn't earned. Favor of man is. Solomon started out with the favor of God, and he's a brilliant man. And because the one thing he asked for assisted him in his journey, his skill set, he did all these great things. But in the end, he didn't really, he didn't leave us a life where we go, I want to live that life. If you look at Solomon's life and you say, I want to live his life, no, you don't. No, you don't. It's a safer and a better bet for us to just look at Matthew 7, John 15, and 1 John 5 and say, that's how we want to live our life when we're asking. And I do want knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And I do want favor with the Lord and favor with men. And I do want to move mountains for the Lord. And I, I want to tilt the room. You know, it's, it's, when God said to him, because you didn't ask for this, I'm going to give you that. He said, I'm going to give you wealth and riches, and those words are fairly similar, but one basically means like the treasures, like pirate treasure almost, you know, like treasures. I'm going to give it to you, but since you leave it all behind, if you don't know how to give it away, what good is it for you anyways? Because the only way you can take it with you is to give it away for the kingdom. That's the only way it goes with you. But he did say, I'll give you honor, and that word honor is the same word that we had from the prayer of Jabez. Remember when we did the prayer of Jabez, and it said he was more honorable than his brother's? And that word meant that he, it's a weight. It's like a weight. And literally, it's like 
hey, she tilts the room. He tilts the room, not from good looks or strength or whatever, but I mean like the presence of the Lord. Jeremy Camp tilts the room. It's very obvious. When Jeremy Camp's in the room, man, it's like, tilts the room. There's women I can think of right now. If they're in the room, they're going to tilt the room with their presence of the Lord and their power in the Lord. So he was given those things, but in the end, ultimately that honor God gave him, he didn't use it all that wisely, which is what we see in the next few verses. We pick it up in verse 13. But WG, don't be afraid to ask, body of Christ. Don't be afraid to ask. Ask, 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 ask. Ask for more. Remember that commercial, this or that? And the kid goes, both. This or that, both. Ask for all of it. Why sell yourself short with what the Lord wants to do in your life? Verse 13. So Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gibeon from before the tabernacle of meeting and reigned over Israel. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. Also the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedars as abundant as sycamores, which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Keva. That's like modern Turkey. The king's merchants brought them in Keva and at the current price. They also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Thus through their agents, their merchants, their brokers, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. These are like, uh, he's a wheel of dealer, you know, he's an acquisition kind of guy, you know, that's what he is. But here's something that you might miss in this, because you'd look at this from a business standpoint and go like, wow, or a political standpoint. In fact, I have a header on my Bible that says Solomon's military and economic power, in case I don't know what he's doing here. It's military and economic power. Wow, that's impressive. Except he's doing things the Lord said not to do. He's acquiring horses from Egypt. God told them back in the law, don't ever go back to Egypt and acquire horses. He told them, don't do this, don't do that. Don't acquire tons of gold and silver. Like literally in this passage we just read, we see the beginning of his downfall. And if you consult different commentaries on the Bible, you will see all these great commentators from times past saying, this is the key. The little compromises, the beginning of a compound effect that would go exponential in his life and destroy him. Because what you find is, if you import horses from Egypt and it works, you might just import your wife from Egypt. And then once you import your wife from Egypt, you might just build her a shrine for her Egyptian gods in Israel. And if you want peace with your wife and you're going to live there long enough, you might find yourself going to those shrines and worshiping at those shrines. And you multiply that with your Egyptian wife, with your Moabite wives, your Ammonite wives, and your other wives. What you've done is you've compounded the effect. Now you have 300 wives, 700 concubines, with all their false gods, and all unraveled. But it began with horses in Egypt. Those little things. My greatest failures in life, I can go back to little things, little subtle compromises that set things up. And I would say what we all need to hear right now, we can't go back and change that, but we need to immediately reverse the compound effect of bad decisions and how far they go down the road. It's like that one of Veggie Tales, where it's the little lie and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's Laura's fault she broke the plate. 
She said she had to demonstrate the apple topper, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's what happens. The little things, we, we need to guard our minds and guard our hearts, and, and I've said this to people. You know, we need to guard our mind and our lives from the things that would be against the Lord and exalt themselves against the Lord. And if you think of your life like Jerusalem, you have the walls of Jerusalem protecting you, protecting your mind, protecting your heart, protecting your soul, even protecting your body, how you eat, how you, what kind of food you eat. Do you, you eat healthy? Do you take care of yourself? Do you stretch? Do you exercise? Like, you know, like, you've got, we're spirit, mind, and body. And no one's going to look out for your spirit, mind, and body more than you. And you need to protect those things. So you, you kind of put a hedge around things. You put a hedge. That's Jerusalem. And some, someone wants to come in. A, a virus wants to come in and attack your body. Well, if you're healthier, your body's got a better chance of fighting that virus, right? Isn't that true? Sure it is. Uh, an, an evil influence is, is happening in your world, coming upon you. Someone's coming against your mind, some toxic thinking, whatever. Hey, take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. That's your victory. Like you, this is Jerusalem. Look, there, the, Sennacherib, if you know the story, that he's the Syrian who pitched camp outside Jerusalem and talked trash and all that stuff to the people. Hey, keep it outside Jerusalem. You don't let someone come into your Jerusalem and burn the city down. You keep it outside. So it's up to each one of us to accept personal stewardship and responsibility to guard our hearts and minds and spirit and our triune nature of spirit, mind, and body and look out for the interest of who we are and how we take care of ourselves. That's why, well, it's just the truth. I didn't feel confident in the medical authorities trying to force things on me during the last three years. And I'm the guardian of Joey Brand's body, not the government. And we've had people leave this state because they feel the same way, because of things being forced on them, and I respect that. I'm accountable to God for my body. My body is a temple of the Lord. I wrote letters for people who refused to capitulate to mandates because they felt the same way. Now, if someone wants to do that, that's their choice. That's self-determination. For years, I got my flu shots. Because my mom's like, don't get your flu shot. I get the flu shot. I feel sick. I'm like, I'm not sure if this is working. Yeah, I don't know. I always trusted it until the last three years. Now, I don't trust them anymore. Because I know they get a commission every time they tell me to get the shot, too. So they do have a commission. You are the guardian of your Jerusalem. It's up to you to protect your spirit, mind, and body as you see fit. Protect your city and the little things that can compromise your city, whether it's external or whether you let it come in like, oh, hey, come on in. And then that's the very thing that's going to be your downfall for your marriage, for your family, for everything, for your business. So we need to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and our total person, even our emotions. I'm getting better at responding and not reacting because I don't want to light the fire that burns down my city. I want to diffuse things and think it through and get better at self-control. Can I get a witness? Yes and amen. You start buying horses in Egypt, that's the beginning of a thousand idols of false gods in your community. And it all began with horses in Egypt. Just a little thing. Didn't seem like a big deal, but it was. Now we read on chapter 2. Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. And Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry stones in the mountains and 3,600 to oversee them. 
Then Solomon sent to Hiram, king of Tyre, saying, it's modern Lebanon, as you've dealt with David my father and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I am building a temple for the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense for the continual showbread for the burnt offerings morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, and all the set feasts of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And the temple which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a temple, since heaven of the heavens of heavens cannot contain him? And who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Therefore send me at once a man skillful to work in gold and silver, in bronze and iron, in purple and crimson and blue, who has skill to engrave with skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Remember, David set aside the skillful labor force for him. Verse 8, also send me cedar and cypress and algum logs from Lebanon, for I know that your servants have skill to cut timber in Lebanon. And indeed, my servants will be your servants to prepare timber for me in abundance, for the temple which I'm about to build shall be great and wonderful. And indeed, I will give you to your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 core of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. So that's the merchant exchange rate. That's what he's going to pay for these services. So we'll stop there for a minute. Well, Solomon realizes he doesn't have the skill set. He doesn't have the right people to do the job. He's got his very best people, but they don't have the skill necessary to accomplish it. I remember... In 1989, there was a band at Calvary Chapel Vista. Good band, a rock band. Late 80s style. Christian band. And I, and I really liked the drummer. And I liked the band. But they, the band got a different drummer. And I asked the lead guy in the band, why did you get a different drummer? Because I really liked your drummer. And he goes, he couldn't hit the things we needed to hit for our style of music. His skill set tapped out. I had a similar conversation with Phil Wickham when he was about 18. And I said, I really like that drummer. Why is he no longer a drummer? He said, he couldn't hit the things we need to hit for the music I'm doing. The skill set tapped out. We all know what it's like to hire someone to do something that their skill set was not capable of doing it. Like the relative that's going to fix the car and does more harm than good. (laughs) <laughs> hey, we know that one, right? <laughs> like, uh, it, 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 the compound effect of uh, negligence can uh, go off, right? Yeah, I mean, you even think with contractors. When we first moved to our house in Huntington Beach, we had, like, the, the hookup friendship thing do this, this work in our house. About six, $7,000, you know, home improvement kind of thing. And we put in these canned ceiling lights, they, they weren't even symmetrically even. And then they, it was just done and slapped and all this stuff, and they didn't even paint correctly. And we're like, wow. And I don't know why I let it go like that for about nine years. I would look up at those things going like, wow. <laughs> you, you know, you, you, if you're a homeowner and you have something like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, I was like, ah. Oh. And it was in the name of the Lord, too, the people that did it, you know, that made it worse. I'm like, I look at it like, what a sloppy job. Like, it's like, ah, oh, they're, they're not even even. Like, oh. And then Pastor Raul came over and tried to fix some electrical problems we had with it because he used to be an electrician. And he's like, oh, Joey, it's a mess up there. And I was like, oh, don't even tell me that. 
But then we hired Gordon about three years ago when we did a kitchen remodel. Gordon's like, hey, when the guys show up and they all have matching shirts, that's generally a good sign in the construction force. And they're clean shirts. And the guys that subcontracted, the plumbers, the electric, everybody, everyone showed up with different shirts for their team. He's a first-rate guy, and he hired first-rate people that represented him. Man, when I look at my kitchen, I just go like, wow. They're like, and they're like, you know, a job well done, skillful work. Which person would you want to be? Something thrown together sloppy. Plus, the person that did that tried to upsell me on everything. Tried to upsell me on everything. I'm like, hey, I had to stop and go, listen to me, listen to me. No more. There's no more money. We're done. He tried to upsell. I'm like, he, listen, I don't have the money. Stop. I literally grabbed him. I said, stop. I don't have any more money. We're done. He was imposing his plan for my house on me. And it wasn't a very good one. I'm glad I stopped the damage where it was at. Gordon said, hey, we can do this. It will change the price a little bit, but he had a projection date, finished project completion date. And now do you, we can do this or do that. We, the plan was so obvious. It was so good. This is another topic tonight. But it was all there. And it's like, yeah, for sure. We understand it's going to cost a little more because we're doing this. I mean, everything was communicated, signed off on, hit the, the oh, it was wonderful. We love our kitchen. Gordon's hard to get because really great contractors like that are hard to get. And sometimes people ask me for a great contract. I'm like, well, start with Gordon. And this is what we say. You get what you pay for and you pay for what you get. And if you get a cheap price, you'll probably get a cheap product. That's why I don't shop at the dollar store, right? You pay for what you get. You get what you pay for and you pay for what you get. We've learned that. That's just, that's how life works. People ask me about bids and say, I tell them, look, because Roger down the street, the elderly man who was going to get taken for 25 grand on water damage, uh, there, there, there was mold from some water damage, and the guys came in, they said 25 grand. He's like, I'm going to have to go get like a, a, a HELOC or a, a lean against the house to get this money. I said, oh, Roger, don't do that because he respects me. He goes, a four-square church loves the Lord. I go, let me talk to Devin from our church. He's a big-time plumber. I said, there's just no way in the world you should be paying five grand for, more than five grand ever for mold. It's, it, it scares people, but that's, it would never be more than that. Devin's guys came in. They did it for two grand and did a great job. Now, that's elderly abuse, by the way, too, because Roger's in his 80s, and someone's going to take advantage of him. It was such a thing. But, you know, it's like, so I told Roger, he asked me, do I, know, do I have an asphalt guy? Because he's doing his driver, like, I don't. But I'll tell you what, Roger, here's what you do. Get at least three quotes. Be the person that's skillful and that leaves a, a win-win for everybody. So when I look at this, listen, this is the context. Solomon is building the house of the Lord, and he doesn't have the right people to do it. He's, he's like um, LinkedIn. He's trying to find the people that can do it. Susan Branch was the president of Roxy. She had to find the right people to come in and do stuff. And, and it's not always easy finding the right people. Solomon went to where he knew he could trust the people. And here's a key thought about finding the right people. I did some research on the people of Tyre for, dec- excuse me, for centuries and centuries, even a thousand years before this time. That's, a, that's the time of Abraham. 
These people in this region were renowned for their skill with working with wood. How they grew the trees, when they cut the trees, which trees they cut, how they treated the trees. And they were in demand all over the the Mediterranean for the skill of the work they did. They were experts at the highest level with what they did. And so Solomon went to the very best. He says, hey, this is all, I've got all this wealth. We're going to build the temple. It's for, it's for our great God. There are no other gods. You see what he said? It's for our God. It's not like a little temple for Dagon like the Philistines had. This is for the living God. And who can even contain him? It's really for us to meet with him and have a concept of him. He's not like he's going to dwell in the house like Dagon. Because when the Philistines, hundreds of years before, had the Ark of the Covenant, they put it in their temple, their little teeny temple, and that's their Dagon. There's Dagon like Dagon. And Dagon fell down and was broken, right? Solomon's like, no, 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 forget the Philistine stuff. This is the real stuff. And this is how he was at the beginning of his ministry and his his calling as a king. He said, hey, this is for God, and we've got to bring in the very best supplies, the very best, the very best. And so he knows it's beyond him, and this is important. There's a life lesson. When something's beyond you, it's good to recognize it. And it's good to find someone that can get it done. Or, again, if you're doing something and you're not sure, get some other opinions. In the multitude of counsel, there's wisdom. There, there is. And be, be someone that is... Take your time to, to research things and look at things and consider things, what you're doing. The bigger the decision is, the more you should think about it, pray about it, and consider what you're doing. We use money from our house to remodel our house and... I was talking with Greg McEwen about this one time because he sold a house and got another house when everything was really good. I said, you know, equity money is like monopoly money. It doesn't seem real. Like, it just doesn't seem real. Like, when you go to work and you, let's say you go to work for a month and you make $5,000, that's real money. You went to work, you got this, you got this check, you got that, and there's $5,000. When you're dealing with houses and equity money, it's like monopoly money. It's like, oh, I was, at, I was at Montebello the other day, and these people said, oh, we're thinking about doing this with this house and that house. I'm like, well, what's the address of the house? Let's look it up. It's in Bell. Like, what? Well, how do you do that? This is what it is. Oh, look at this. It's worth 565000 Oh, look. Look at the appreciation. Because they thought the house was going down in value. I go, look at that. 11000 in the last month. That's green. That's good if you own the house. If you want to buy houses, it's not so good. I go, your mom's house in Bell gained $11,000 equity in the month of April. Which proves what I've been saying. The, economy, the, the housing market's strong. It's strong right now. Like, wait, that house made $11,000 doing nothing? Yeah, it's like monopoly money. It's like, <laughs> it's not really real because it, it is, but it's not. Do your homework, pray, put the Lord before it, and then make the best decisions you can. And find skillful people to do things that are important. If you hire cheap, you'll get cheap. Now, I know it sounds like the book of Proverbs, but this is the context of the application right here, and it's a good context. I've, I've made the mistake the other way, and, I, and I've been under the bad decisions, and I've gotten wiser in life, and I've made good decisions, and I've been profoundly blessed for it. Profoundly blessed for it. So, especially for you younger people, it's a good word for you to learn from. Because you feel like, oh, we'll just save a little money and go cheap. No, you'll pay more in the long run. People will pay more if you're a salesman. You need to understand this, and you probably do. People, you need to sell them on the quality of the product not the price. People will pay more for a quality product if they know it's a quality product. You just need to help understand it's a quality product. The worst thing you can do is sell something cheap and then have people upset with you and coming back at you because it broke. 
These are life lessons, especially for the younger people here tonight. Now we read on. So he said, I need some skill. And he's like, and Hiram's like, I got skill. I got skill. Verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people and has made you king over them. Hiram also said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth. For he has given King David a wise son, endowed with prudence and understanding, who will build the temple for the Lord and a royal house for himself. Now I have sent a skillful man, endowed with understanding, Hiram, my master craftsman. He's the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre, which, by the way, is a perfect combination. His, his mom was Jewish, and his dad was of the skill set of the Sidonians. Skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, purple and blue, fine linen and crimson, to make any engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given to him. With your skillful men and with the skillful men of my Lord uh, David, your father. Now, therefore, the wheat, the barley, the oil, and the wine which my Lord has spoken of, yeah, send it. Let him send it to his servants. Yeah, quality product costs you a quality price. Verse 16, and we will cut the wood from Lebanon as much as you need. We will bring it to you in rafts by sea to Joppa, and you will carry it up to Jerusalem. Yep, managing, merchandising, shipping, <laughs> receiving. Here it is. This is business right here. Verse 17, then Solomon numbered all the aliens, or the non-Jews, who were in the land of Israel, after the census in which David, his father, had numbered them. And there was found to be 153,600, so non-Israeli citizens. And he made 70,000 of them bearers of burdens, 80,000 stone cutters in the mountains, 3,600 overseers to make the people work. So you had mid-management, 3,600, and then these tens of thousands that did this work. He employed them, he put them to work, and got them working. This phrase back here in verse 15, he says, uh, Hiram says, look, I've got the guy, and to a plan which may be given to him, to work, excuse me, verse 14, with your skillful men. And so we close out tonight with this idea of a plan. And we've been talking about this. We've talked a lot in First Chronicles about skillful people. They're capable, being responsible. The gatekeepers had to be there at 6 a.m. to open up the gates and stuff like that. But this one, I find this interesting that just think what I just talked about in application about skillful people. And, and I could have talked about you making yourself skillful. We've been covering that as well but identifying skillful people for a task that you might have. Hiram sends him the number one guy. He says, this is our best guy. This is our best guy. This guy, he's the very best we have. He's the highest, he's the highest man of skill. He's got a Jewish mom and a Sidonian dad, and he understands our skills. He understands the Jewish culture. He's the guy. But I, this phrase gets my attention he, he can accomplish to make engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given to him. Wow. Listen, in upper management, that's his skill set. Any plan, people who get stuff done. You know, here's a good word for young people again. If you show up to work on to early and you do your job with a good attitude and you finish the job, and then this is the key, and this is where I went all wrong for so many years of my life and particularly wrong with Pastor Chuck Smith. The key is to make yourself more valuable to your boss. It's not that your boss uh, doesn't have more money to give you. You're not worth more money. That's what happened to me and Pastor Chuck. I wanted more money, but I didn't offer more services. I wasn't worth more money. He's already paying me what he thinks I'm worth. So me asking for more money just means he's got to get me out of there. 
That's why he picked up the phone and called two churches that needed a senior pastor and offered me to be their pastors that very moment. All-time classic moment. He literally called the church. Oh, Joey's here. He needs a job. I'm like, But looking back now, and then the Lord had someone do that to me three years later in this room right here. No matter how much we gave them, they needed more money. Your boss doesn't want to know about your financial problems. Your boss wants to know about your skill set to solve his problems or her problems. Right, Susan? Susan doesn't want to hear about your financial problems working at Roxy. She wants to know that you can help her solve her problems. And it's not that she won't, can't pay you more. She won't pay you more because you're not worth more. But if you can solve problems... Then you make yourself worth more. If she can give you a plan and you can solve it, guess what? Hey, there's your pay raise and your bonus. Made your bonus. See, you add value to you. And I can't, re- I can't go back and redo 35 years of ministry. I can only look, look back and try and get any young person to listen to me to please listen to me. Make yourself more valuable. Make yourself more valuable. It's not like the boss doesn't have... Pastor Chuck had plenty of money to give me more money. I wasn't worth more money. I didn't present to him how I could be worth more money. I didn't say, hey, Chuck, let me solve this problem. You know why he loved Don McClure so much, by the way? Is Don McClure got things done for Chuck. Don McClure negotiated um, Twin Peaks and did a great job of it. Well, all right, you know. Chuck's happy. He's, he's, acquiring, he's an acquisition master. He got property all over the world. And Don McClure was really good at that stuff. Don McClure was worth more money because Don McClure multiplied the kingdom. Joey Brand just wanted more money and wanted to dump his pro- and make Chuck pay for my financial problems. It's not Chuck's job to make me live within my means monthly. It's not Chuck's job to make me tithe. It's not Chuck's job to make me save 10% of my income. And it's not Chuck's job to clear my debt. That is my job. So who am I to go into Chuck's office and say, hey, you don't pay me enough money? Oh. He called two churches and offered me right there. You know, like a baseball team? I got, you know, you know the lefty, Joey Baran, you know, the lefty? I got him right here. Hey, he, we're ready to, you know, he's, we're going to put him on wires. Acquisition, you can get him. We still hugged when I left his office. A couple years later, I told him, I'm really, really, really sorry. And he knew I was. Because someone did the exact same thing to me in this office. And I was listening, going like, and it was, go- it was like in a movie where all of a sudden it's like going like fuzzy. I was like, I wouldn't even listen to what they were saying anymore. I was like, I have to call Chuck right now and tell him I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then the people in the office like, here's a bunch of money. Go away. Don't cause problems. See, to be able to have a plan and execute a plan is the greatest skill on planet Earth. And we talked about this. You can have wandering generality. Well, you're not going to leave Newport Harbor to go to Fiji with wandering generality. You're going to go out there with a compass and a clear plan, and this is the course you're charting. And that's how you get to Fiji, Tahiti, Rapa Nui, or Hawaii. So meaningful, specific. And people get paid to come up with plans a plan of action, and to know what are the most important things and to execute the plan. Susan Branch was president of Roxy and Billabong because she had a plan and could execute the plan. When she shows up to teach our women on Saturday night, excuse me, Saturday morning, ladies, wouldn't you agree, Susan Branch has a plan. It's not random. She's not like, oh, however the spirit leads. <laughs> that, you know, Susan, you could do that because you could do that, but no. There's a plan. 
I can assure you she's intentional on Tuesday to be ready for Saturday, right? For sure. She's taking a spiritual beating for it too, so you better have a plan. If you need a beat down, make sure you're at least giving some back. This man could be entrusted with any plan, so I'm going to leave you with this thought that I've learned. This is, again, like the book of Proverbs, but it's Solomon, so why not go Proverbs right now? The ability to identify what needs to be done is a very important ability. In any situation, to identify what needs to be done, especially problem resolution, but to identify what needs to be done. So I'm writing a book. How do you write a book? What needs to be done? I get together with Keith Randolph all the time. Hey, you do this, you can do the, you can do this app, we're going to hire these people. Like, I have a plan. I look at it, I look at it twice a day for the book. I'm, I'm finishing the ninth edit before Jennifer gets home on Thursday. The ninth edit. And then the tenth edit is securing the photo rights for the photos I want to use for the book from the surf photographers. I have a plan. But identifying what needs to be done, the foundation. What does need to be done at the foundation? Okay, Google Foundations. I've been spending the last month intentionally praying about what kind of foundation I'm establishing because between my lawyer, Greg Morris, and my accountant, Dave Morris, I, have to, I want to make sure that I set the right foundation. There's hundreds of different types of foundations, and I need to make sure I pick the right one. Are we acquiring wealth and receiving wealth, asset management, or are we petitioning funds like a regular nonprofit, like March of Dimes? Because there's a big difference how that sets up and how that plays out 30, 40 years from now when I'm not here and someone else is running it. So i got to get the foundation right. So you identify what needs to be done, and this is the second part. This is where my wife is so good. The order by which they need to be done. And that's why some people get paid the big buck, 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 bucks. Because they can identify the problem or the things that need to be done. But to identify the most important thing, and the great failure of most people is they don't identify the most important things. And you do trivial things during the workday instead of the most important thing during the workday. And that's why the last thing I do before I go to bed is write down my big three. This, this, and this. These are the three things that must be done tomorrow. Enjoy Brand's life, ready for, and watching for the day of the Lord. These are the three things that must be done. I must be ready to teach tonight. I must take care of all the administrative elements of this day. And I lost a Monday because it's a holiday, but if you do a lot of Monday, you don't really reclaim that day. It doubles up your Tuesday. And so on and so forth. So I just give this encouraging word to discipline yourself to identify the things that need to be done and be able to learn how to identify which things are the most important things. Because the most important things then become the next thing. And that's how you become effective and efficient and fruitful. And that's how you get a raise at Roxy. That's how you get a raise at Billabong. That's how you get a raise in the world. And that's how you move up. Because the people who get paid the most money in the world get paid because they can solve the problems, because they identify the problems, and they find the solutions, and they figure out the road and the means by which to resolve them. I don't like problems, but it took me until I was 60 to realize, hey, the way I can increase income for my descendants and the kingdom of God is solve problems. I'm suddenly motivated. They're not obstacles. They're opportunities. My problems aren't obstacles anymore. They're opportunities to learn new skills that make me better as a, as a human being for the Lord and the kingdom of God. And it's the same for you. Wouldn't you like to have someone call you in because you're that person, like Mouse Finch and Elf or something? You know, I say that facetiously, but like, yeah, they brought him in. Yeah, Miles Finch, he's the guy. He's like, you're like, don't you want to be that person when you show up? Like, you're the, you're the woman that tilts the room because you, you know how to, I, you've been, you can be given a plan and you can identify 
the most important things in order and how to get them done. Now, we're not doing that to leave stuff behind. We're doing that to bring people to the kingdom. And this is the most important thing. To use your God-given abilities to the fullest level is just that, is to use your God-given abilities to the fullest level at work and for the kingdom of God. That's, that's our goal. That's our goal, that it shines for the Lord. So be encouraged and learn. This is all like the book of Proverbs because that's what it is. It's skillful people or unskillful people. And it's bringing in people that can do it and it can be given a plan and execute the plan. And that's, I'm very transparent. I never went to Chuck and said, how can I do the extra stuff? That would, that would have been the key. My, my whole destiny would have been a lot different had I just said, Chuck, Pastor Chuck, what can I do? Can I show up earlier? What can you give to me to get done? Because I'll leave you with this, you young people. If you go to work and you stand by the boss's side and you are willing to tackle things that no one else wants to tackle them and you go out there and get them done and you finish them and you come back and say, what's the next thing? And you do that for a period of six to nine months, you are Susan Branch's assistant at Roxy and you got a major raise and you don't have to worry about moving out of state because you feel you're priced out of California. It's just good counsel. I just don't want to stand before the Lord and come up short. It's not about temporal wealth or even tilting the room. I just don't want to stand in eternity before the Lord and come up short because I didn't give my very best because I already know I haven't. So I'm really trying hard in this second half to pour it on and make sure I do. So young people be inspired because it's in front of you. Older people think about, hey, what's still to be done?